0: Hi, and welcome to a very short introduction. From ancient Greece to branding, globalization to Homer, and logic to fashion, we'll showcase a concise and dynamic insight into a range of diverse topics for wherever your curiosity may lead you. So here is today's very short introduction. Hello, I'm Linda Greenhouse, and my VSI is the United States Supreme Court, a very short introduction. So of course that raises the question, What is the Supreme Court? It's a very unusual body. These VSIs, as you know, are written for an educated, interested audience from around the world. And so they don't assume that people come to them with any specific knowledge, just with curiosity. So Americans kind of take the US Supreme Court for granted without actually knowing very much about it. It has many unusual aspects. Most countries have a high court that interprets their basic law, but actually none of them have one feature that the US Supreme Court has, which is life tenure. Judges are appointed for life. There's no other high court in the world that does that. In fact, of the 50 states in the US, uh, each one of them has a high court that interprets state law. Only one of the 50 Rhode Island has life tenure for its judges. The others have terms of years or age limits. And the other unusual thing about the US Supreme Court is its enormous power. It has the ability to declare laws passed by the democratically elected Congress unconstitutional. It has the ability to interpret federal statutes, many of which are vague and desperately in need of some interpretation. In fact, many of them are enacted by Congress uh, without the ability to resolve various disputes on the floor of the House of Representatives or the Senate, and they figure, let's let the Supreme Court figure it out. So what's, what's in this book? I start with some history. And one takeaway that I would like people to get from reading the book is the enormous degree to which the Supreme Court has written its own story, has defined its own power the expectation of the framers who wrote the Constitution was that the court would not be terrifically important. Alexander Hamilton in one of the Federalist Papers, which were a set of basically political documents aimed at persuading people to vote to ratify the Constitution, called the judiciary the least dangerous branch. The court wasn't given any specific powers really in the text of the Constitution, Article 3, which is the Judiciary article, simply says, there shall be one Supreme Court and such other courts as Congress made from time to time establish. So it was an early Supreme Court under the fourth Chief Justice, the great Chief Justice John Marshall, who's actually often considered to be the first Chief Justice, but actually he was number four, who actually helped his court to the power to declare laws unconstitutional, the power known as Judicial Review, and he said, It is the duty, the power and duty of the Supreme Court to declare what the law is. So I think it's very interesting for people to realize that um, we've assumed that power ever since. Uh, It it has helped shape important aspects of the United States history. For instance, in Brown against Board of Education in 1954, when the court said that school segregation by race was unconstitutional, that was the Supreme Court that helped launch the Civil Rights Revolution and in 2000, when the court said, by the way, there should be no more recounting of the presidential votes in the disputed election in the state of Florida, a case called Bush against Gore. It was the Supreme Court that effectively made George W. Bush president of the United States. So the court's power is really quite obvious. We assume it, but it wasn't necessarily part of the part of the original plan. Uh, another thing that's often misunderstood about the Supreme Court is the power, or lack thereof, of the Chief Justice. It's the Chief Justice of the United States, not, as is often said, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He, it's always been a man until now, he is the person in charge of the entire judicial branch, more than a 1,000 judges, most of them life-tenured under Article Three. some judges who are called Article I judges of specialized courts, actually don't have life tenure. But there's nothing in the Constitution that really defines the Chief Justice's role, except for one rather odd little difference. The Chief Justice, the Constitution provides, shall preside over the Senate trial of the impeachment of a president. The impeachment of a president. So the American public was treated to seeing Chief Justice John Roberts sit in the Senate presiding over the Senate trial of the impeachment of Donald Trump. Of course, that led to his acquittal. But why would the Constitution say that? Well, it's because the president of the Senate, who ordinarily presides over the Senate, is the vice president of the United States. So if the president is being impeached, the vice president would become president. So that is a little bit of a conflict of interest. And so the framers thought that through and told the Chief Justice to, I was about to say walk across the street because today the Supreme Court is across the street from the US Capitol, but in the early days, once the government moved from Philadelphia to Washington DC, the Supreme Court met in the Capitol in what now is called the old Supreme Court Chamber. It's actually a beautiful space that's maintained as a museum. I'm sure during the pandemic that's not available to be seen, but ordinarily it's open to public view, and if anybody's in Washington, D.C. with a taste for history, it's very much worth going down to the basement of the Capitol and seeing this beautiful little room. So anyway, the Chief Justice's powers really also grew like the court's powers, being in charge of this entire branch of government, but basically his is only one vote out of nine. He can't tell the others what to do. They're all separately confirmed. They all have their own commissions. They all have their own chambers with their own staff, their own law clerks. But one thing that's very interesting, of course, it's a so-called collegial court, which doesn't necessarily mean they all get along. That's not the meaning of the word collegial. It means that they have to act in concert in order to do anything. So there's nine justices without four other people agreeing with you, counting up to five, you can't get anything done. So the chief justice is one vote, but but he does set a tone. He does have the power to assign the majority opinion in any case in which he himself has voted in the majority. If he has not voted in the majority, then that power falls to the, the associate justice, who is senior, who has voted in the majority. And the power to assign an opinion is an important power because the devil is in the details of a lot of Supreme Court opinions. and each Supreme Court decision, the opinion that backs up that decision, tells a narrative. You might say narrativizes the, the story and the law. And so each justice develops a certain voice, and it kind of matters uh, who gets the assignment. So uh, what's come out in 2020 is the second edition of my VSI. I wrote the original one, in 20, it came out in 2011. So why do we need a second opinion? Why did I feel the need? And I went back to my editor and I said, I think it's time for a second edition. I mean, the court hasn't changed. It's still the same basic structure. But what really changed are the politics surrounding the court, the appointment process. That's become something very different, actually. In my first edition, I talked about the appointment process under the Constitution. The president makes the appointment and the Senate must confirm. And what I said then and what I always believed to be true is that as long as the president, no matter what the president's party, no matter what the majority in the Senate, as long as the president makes the nomination, that's sort of within the bounds of the existing ideological consensus in the country. That nominee's gonna, chances are high, that nominee is gonna get confirmed. That changed, that really changed as the polarized American politics changed And we've had real shoot-'em-up showdowns in the Senate over presidential nominations, not only in the Trump era, but starting in the Obama era. President Obama made two nominations to the Supreme Court, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, two very highly qualified women. Neither of them was particularly ideological. And a great majority of Republicans voted against them, voted to deny their confirmation under marching orders from the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, who basically had had publicly said that his desire was to to deprive President Obama of accomplishing anything. So in the first edition of my book, obviously, the name Mitch McConnell would not be found in the index. But in the second edition, I tell the story of what's become of the nomination process. And I'll just close with one more observation about the court that I think is quite significant. Today, for the first time in certainly modern American history, the polarization on the court maps completely onto the political polarization in the country. And what I mean is this, we have basically five conservative justices. We have four basically liberal justices. The five were all appointed by Republican presidents. The four were all appointed by Democratic presidents. There's no crossover. And throughout our history, There have been crossovers, some of them very famous. Chief Justice Earl Warren, the famous um, very liberal Chief Justice in the 1950s and 1960s, was named to the court by President Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, basically to get Earl Warren out of Republican politics as a potential competitor. He had been been governor of California, very active in politics, and uh, President Eisenhower is said to have said this may be apocryphal. I've only made two mistakes in my political career, and they're both sitting on the Supreme Court. And they were two of his appointees, Chief Justice Warren and Justice William Brennan, who was even more liberal than Chief Justice Warren and had been appointed because he was a Northeastern Catholic from New Jersey, and President Eisenhower was trying to appeal to the Catholic vote. So the Supreme Court has never been out of politics, but these days it's directly in the political foresight the political sights of the american public and what that means for the corest institution what that means for our politics is an unfolding story that's outside the bounds of my of my little vsi thank you